Woodstock, Deadheads, The Village, Kate Ashbury, Counterculture, Women's Lib, Karma, Enlightenment. <laughs> sound familiar or sound foreign? That's okay. Join us, the two old bogey yogis, as we reminisce, discuss our spiritual paths, and explore all things yoga, meditation, and more. Your hosts each week are Swami Yashokananda and Reverend Prem, who between us have nearly a hundred years of living La Vida Integral Yoga. And that's what makes us the two, two old bogey yogis. <laughs> In this episode, we're talking about motivation. What gets you out of bed each day? What do you aspire to? And how do you live your yoga? Join us now. Okay, Swami Ashokananda, I have a question for you. Okay. What motivates you? What an important question. Why do I want to get up in the morning and open my eyes and proceed with the day? Well, one thing comes to mind to feel aligned with, feel connected to, feel the love of my guru, to see what he wants to do through me each day, to be become a better and better non-obstructing channel to that energy and consciousness, which is the higher part of myself. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I think uh, what I'm working on more these days is to listen really attentively to others, to really shut up my mind, take them in on all levels. You're helping me to do that, by the way. Uh, and, and then share my path as authentically as possible. If somebody's interested, just to be myself, share what, what it's like to be Swami Shokananda and to not uh, try to seem anything other than what I am, which sometimes I would prefer to be higher, present myself as higher than I am. But I want to make sure that uh, I stay humble, I stay real. And I'm really trying to see the divine in others. That seems like a really hard one. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, mean, I mean, to go from you know concept from a philosophical construct to really feeling that it shifts everything. It really shifts how you operate in this world. It totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. actually, yesterday I was reading somebody put this post on Facebook. Like, what would it be like for you if you lived your life like there was no other? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, like in other words, just everyone was just, you know, who says that Norman Lear, the great, really? um, the, yeah, the great producer, Norman Lear, yeah. uh, who he created all in the family. And he's still you know, alive. I think he's he still is. Alive. He yeah. is. He's like he's in his 90s. Yeah. Um, and he's still producing. And he had this bumper sticker and it's it's become, become his saying uh, something like. Uh, just another version of you. <laughs> I used to keep on my desk when I was a, when I was the manager of a food store. I used to keep a sign on my desk: "If you see another, there will be fear." That's so true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. what would it be like to live your life as if there were no other? Everyone <laughs> is one consciousness, that pure awakened consciousness. That's maybe more recognized in some than others, but seeing that in every single person. I mean, that's living uh, non-dualistically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To live that way. 
Wow. Did you see the Spike Jones film, Being John Malkovich? Where everybody everybody became John yeah. Malkovich. <laughs> That's not quite the self. Not but. quite the same. But. <laughs> yeah. So when you were talking about your motivation, as long as I've known you, I feel like I've known you to be someone who strives to be a real pure channel of Gurudev's teachings, of integral yoga, of that movement to awakened consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't seem like your motivation has shifted that much. But when you're talking about focusing on your interactions with others, is that sort of another aspect of it that's come more to the fore more recently? I think that's a good insight. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was not a higher in my list of motivating factors until more recently. And what, what, what caused, if you can identify something, does something come to mind of what caused that shift or that this new iteration of your motivation? Well, maybe just uh, the recognition that it can't all be about me and my enlightenment and my path and journey. Uh, The supplemental part, the complementary part is really listen to others and then communicate authentically. So I think it has to do with being able to have other focus a little bit more. And I wasn't it co- capable of doing that maybe until recently, yeah. Is it a movement that kind of came from your evolution as a teacher or is this something a little different? I think they're connected. As I had to be in the role of, I don't know if teacher's the right word, but sharing my path more, then I had to acknowledge that 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 was an important part of my swadharma, my how I was being used by the whole. And if I was going to do that well, I had to first listen really well before I opened my mouth. I think it does come from uh, an evolution that has pushed a little bit more to the forefront of sharing what I'm doing with others. How about you? Is there anything you can identify as a strong motivation for you in your in your life now? So I would say the motivation for me is very similar to your motivation mm-hmm. as you expressed it, you know, getting up each day and asking myself, yeah, how can I be the best channel to make Gurudev's teachings as accessible as possible? Mm-hmm. I think what shifted for me is that that used to be my sole focus. Okay. And now it's more bringing in also my own growth. Not that I wasn't interested in my own growth before. Right. I've always been working on myself, but it's just gone to a different level where Mm. I see them so intertwined. Whereas I used to hear people talk all the time about how you can't teach what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in your position of like formally teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm feel like I'm more a behind the scenes conveyor belt. But even to do that, I feel now that I have to be so internally in alignment. Mm. And it's making me spend a lot more time in my own sadhana, study, Mm. meditation, reflection, contemplation on these teachings and just to go as deep as possible. 
I'm also really motivated these days to try to understand our integral yoga system in mm. a much more holistic way and how it works synchronistically and as a whole and complete system mm -hmm. and the roots how Gurudev developed this system and in his own journey and integrating various teachers and teachings and his mm. own root tradition. I'm, I'm rather fascinated by that these days. So that's such useful work. Yeah. To, to know how Gurudev evolved into the Integral system, where that came from, uh, and I appreciate the work you're doing on that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really quite fascinating. So is that, would, is that something also more recent? Is that? Uh, yeah, I would say it's more recent that mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about it that much before. And I guess when I started studying death and dying from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, mm -hmm. Because as I was aging and facing various medical issues, I figured I'd better find out about this stuff. You know, I hadn't really thought about death and dying that much. Yeah, the Buddhists are, are the are the people who really went deep into that. Yeah, the, they went deep. Tibetan Buddhists particularly, yeah. Yeah, the Tibetan yeah. Buddhists particularly. And then, I mean, things like just even practical things. Because in Andrew Holacek's book, Preparing to Die, he presents the whole Tibetan Buddhist philosophy on death and dying. And at the same time, probably two thirds of the book is just practical issues of what to do and what to prepare and mm -hmm. living wills and advanced medical directives and Dharma wills. Mm, Dharma will. Yeah, oh, Dharma yeah. will. So <laughs> it's like getting clear and specifying exactly what kind of service you'd like to have at mm. end of life and mm down to specific chants and prayers and who you'd want in the room and, and then legal issues, estate issues, everything. And so it's a whole big yeah. arena of things to consider. That got me into learning more about Tibetan Buddhism and then realizing, I just feel like I don't know that much about the philosophy behind our own integral yoga system. So mm -hmm. I started studying Advaita Vedanta and... I, I saw a lot of things there, principles and philosophy he was bringing into the system, but it just wasn't all lining up of mm -hmm. the dualism of Sankhya Yoga and Patanjali and then the Gita and then Jnana Yoga and Vedanta. So it was a yeah. bit confusing. And now I feel like I'm kind of making my way to some of the foundational influences and the system that Gurudev really grew up in, which was the Shaiva tradition, but a very particular one, the Saiva mm -hmm. Siddhanta okay. in Tamil Nadu, which started out as a dualistic system and then evolved over time to be more middle and then leaning to what they consider left in the tradition, which is the non-dual. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. So part of my motivation every day is really Again, asking the questions, being really curious, trying to understand all the underpinnings of Gurudev's teachings and getting to deeper and deeper levels of understanding and then integration personally. And then I hope maybe 
who knows if it could develop into something that I can write about and share with others. Mm, that's I hope so, yeah. Has to be yeah. determined, but yeah. yeah. You know, what's interesting as as you talk and also as I listen to myself, you know, this thing about becoming a clearer channel for this higher consciousness we're calling the guru also has to do with our own growth. Like uh, you were saying something a lot that, and I feel it also that, you know, I have a responsibility not just to convey what I learned from my teacher. Mm. I have a responsibility as a disciple to assimilate that through my own being and see how that teacher expresses it itself through this vehicle. I think it's a dual thing of, of becoming clearer for something to come through and also evolving in some ways that your unique expression. So it's not just parroting somebody, right, right. but it's coming through you in a way that you've reached a certain level and now it can come through you in, in a more clear way. Yeah, because you can relate to it in a, in a more embodied experience. Mm, that's a good way. word. That's yeah. a good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah instead of not just, just like, all the head. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, exactly. Yeah. You know, in yeah. an intellectual way, Harish Christopher Wallace, Harish is his spiritual name, who right. I'm studying Gurudev's tradition with at the moment. And similarly to you, he doesn't like to reference himself as a teacher. He calls mm. himself a sharer, but okay. he says... <laughs> He says that's a little clumsy of a word to use. So, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he will revert to teacher, but he prefers sharer. Yeah. Because uh, he's gone very deep in the tradition. His whole dissertation is on that. He has a PhD from Berkeley. That meaning uh, uh, Saiva Siddhanta? Yes. The beginning of Shaivism from what's called CE or the common error when oh he identifies and scholars agree that that was the beginning at the very beginning of the common era that's when shaivism was really coming to the fore being developed the scriptures the mm -hmm. all the puranas and everything associated with shaivism were starting to take form right and then its development into what is known as saiva siddhanta that was a very orthodox Okay. Ritualistic, dualistic system. And then in Kashmir, in around 9th to 12th centuries, there okay. was a huge explosion in, in a richness of diverse thinking and bringing those teachings to a more non-dual concept. And mm -hmm. that just sparked a whole movement that infiltrated India and even influenced what we know as yoga today. Mm, okay. Because even Hatha yoga is coming from what was called a tantric tradition. I hesitate to use that word because it's so misunderstood. Uh, I, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's a shame because that's actually what the tradition was called. It was Shaiva Tantra. And mm -hmm. there's also Vaishnava Tantra, but particularly Shaiva Tantra is Gurudev's root tradition you could call it Shaiva yoga because yoga is essentially in its classic sense, a tantric system, mm. meaning that it's about mantra and yantra and vibration and practice. It's about yeah, practice. Yeah. Exactly. It's a dis discipline. Yeah. 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 Discipline and practices mm -hmm. that work with the subtle body and the subtle mm -hmm. energies 
Now, I read your the article, your interview with uh, David Frawley. That was fascinating to see how hot yoga was originally something very subtle and deep. Yeah, Harish has written about that too. It's really interesting. Mm. We should probably talk about that. We did talk about the roots of hatha yoga to some extent, and that was from some of what I learned from another scholar practitioner, Edwin, Dr. Edwin Bryant. Mm-hmm. And now with Dr. Christopher Wallace, Harish, who I'm studying with now, he's really mapped it out in much more in depth. Mm. Might be interesting, but mm. might be a sidebar. <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you're saying that, you know, things start out orthodox, rigid. And I think that's how most seekers start, you know, they, they have to become like true believers gradually. And, and then as they develop, things begin to percolate and expand. So it's interesting how traditions follow a certain trajectory as, as the individuals follow. It's so true. That is <laughs> yeah. really an interesting insight. Yeah. As I'm reading a lot of these original texts, it's so confusing because how did it go from this to that? But it's true that the practitioners, I picture them talking amongst themselves at the time from various sects and areas, but, you know, nearby, because obviously transportation wasn't what it is today. But in these certain regions were sort of these like almost hotbeds Mm. of philosophical discourse, then people experimenting with different practices and developing systems that then became more systematized and transmitted over centuries. Mm. And I think that is how it developed. It developed out of their own realization. You know, you and I, at one point, were talking about how Gurudev's own evolution from the system that he grew up in of Saiva Siddhanta and his even studying with different Siddhars So these are people, very accomplished tantric yogis. He was even initiated mystically by the Siddhar, one of the famous Tamil Siddhars called Bogar. Mm -hmm. I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, Bogar was the one who created from these nine different metals, actually poisonous metals that when they alchemically work together, they're really healing. And so... He created the Polony temple deity, the Muruga deity, and he's enshrined there also Bogar. There's a Bogar Samadhi. That's where his Samadhi site is at Polony. Yeah, yeah Gurudev has taken us there a few times, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Gurudev would always go there. Every time he was in India, he would spend time in Polony, and he lived in Polony for a time yeah. as a young sadhu. Right. He would run up the hill, right? He would run up the hill. Yeah. It, was, it was a big hill, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a ginormous hill. And that yeah, was yeah. just every day, yeah. sometimes twice a day, up and down. Yeah. I remember walking down. I remember once trying to walk up it. I gave up on that pretty fast. Yeah, but yeah. I walked down it. I couldn't walk for a week. Yeah, I know. So it's hard, it's hard to be hard on the down. knees. Yeah. Yeah. On the Imagine knees, walking hard. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he would run up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So at the Bogar Samadhi, Gurudev had this vision of Bogar from whom he received the mantra that is our Bija mantra and the yantra and our yantra. Yeah. That part I didn't know. Okay, that's good information. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is his tradition. And then I think as part of Gurudev's own evolution and in the systematizing he was going to do, he integrated 
all these different parts of what we can draw from the different yogas, all within this foundation of non-dualism. Mm -hmm. It's really totally fascinating. And it's so deep and rich. I just love this whole non-dual thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. And I was reading something that Harish wrote the other day, or he was, he didn't write, he was actually advising someone who was saying to him that they were going through a really difficult time, having a lot of physical challenges, medical health challenges, and didn't right. know if they'd ever sort of go back to their basic level of good health that they once had. Right. And they were talking about like recovery, like she was saying, I don't know if I'll ever recover. So he said this to her, and I was so blown away by it. I, I wrote it down. That's mm, here. Okay. In each moment, every single one of us is a perfect incarnation of the one, exactly as we are. Mm. It is only our psychological and cultural conditioning that prevents us from seeing the truth. The strange miracle of embodied consciousness is that each part of the whole contains the pattern of the whole. It's deeply true to say that regardless of whatever you perceive yourself as lacking, you are the whole. Mm -hmm. You are an instantiation of the whole pattern of the universe. The universe had to be the way it is for you to exist, as startling as that might seem, because you have this issue or that issue. That is part of the perfection with which you incarnate the one. Each of us is a completely whole incarnation of the one. And all that you have and all that you seem to lack is part of the unique instantiation of the one that you are. And it's not just convincing yourself, it's about practicing mm -hmm. toward the non-conceptual realization of your own completeness. <laughs> the non-conceptual realization, that's yeah. the key here. Yeah. That's the key. <laughs> yeah. The perfection with which you incarnate the one universal consciousness is total. In Sanskrit, that's sampurnata, total fullness, completion, perfection in every part containing the whole. It's so beautiful. That's amazing. So even in our illness, I know a number of people who are really going through difficult times physically now, even when we're mentally in disarray, we can accept that as exactly what the whole wants right. to manifest for us. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's exactly it. And it, it's a complete paradigm shift. And it doesn't mean that you don't long to be recovered or not going through this or that, but you include all of it, the mm. longing, mm. the sorrow about that, the difficulty, the challenge, all in the complete whole perfection of who you are as this complete whole <laughs> one with yeah everything and everyone. It's so the opposite of seeing yourself as broken, fragmented, disconnected, et cetera, et cetera. You may feel that way, but it's like how we said before, something can be real without being true. It, 
it may not be the whole truth. It mm -hmm. may only be part of the truth. So in this, in the non-dual approach, you're always coming back to what is the whole truth? Mm. What is my whole truth? And you include everything as part of that experience versus in the proverbial sutra clashes that we talked about in a recent episode of desire, aversion. So I want the things that feel good and I don't want the things that feel bad. Mm. Instead, you embrace everything as the perfect fullness, completion in every moment. So let me see if I have this straight. So I'm fighting with somebody and the temperature is rising. The volume is rising. One, I'm not okay with, with this other person, what they're saying, their, how they're thinking, their approach. And I'm not happy with the way I'm reacting to it. From what I'm hearing you say is, uh, I'm okay with not being okay with that. That situation and my reaction to it is all a part of the perfection of the one. Right. And even even my even my not being not being okay with it is okay. Uh, as long as it's all held within this bowl, you can think of those as like pieces of fruit. Mm. This person, me. Okay, we're different pieces of fruit. This conflict, this disagreement, I don't feel good about it. The other person, all these are pieces of fruit. What's the bowl that holds it together? I don't believe all of that essentially. Mm -hmm. I believe that I'm practicing toward the non-conceptual realization of my right. own completeness, my sampurnata, total fullness, perfection in every moment, in every aspect. I'm a perfect incarnation of the one and there's no problem. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't mean <laughs> that in this level of where dualism pervades, I also have to attend to those things. Yeah. So I have to figure out. <laughs> That's the word, figure out. Yeah. yeah figure out how <laughs> to navigate this conflict in the but, most skillful way, right? <laughs> For the yeah. benefit of myself and all concerned. All living beings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And if I can situate myself in this darshana, this view of reality, which says that there is no duality, there's no person I'm in conflict with, they're none other than me, my true nature, my, my beingness and their beingness are one and the same. If we can hold that as our bowl that contains everything, then I think it radically shifts the whole feeling and experience of what's whatever's going on. And that's not something that's yeah. going to happen today or tomorrow. That is a Maybe process. Next, next Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a ripening. <laughs> that's a ripening yeah. that happens in a spiritual maturity yeah. in which this view deepens and deepens until it becomes completely rooted and the actual ego sense dissolves. It doesn't mean you don't have an ego because we have to function with our egos. Wow. It means the ego identification dissolves. Mic drop. Yeah. Going back to our first question uh, about motivation, what a, what a beautiful motivating force 
Yeah. Yeah, that's what's, that's why I'm here to, to, to understand that. That's the key to alleviating suffering, to being of ultimate service to our guru, our tradition, our students, our friends, the whole world, the planet, right? Is by yes. understanding and embodying that understanding and living that, expressing it in everything we do. And, and I like the word figuring out because uh, we need to use some kind of sharp clarity of mind to understand how am I going to move in that direction? If I bring too much ego in. The tradition of inquiry that I really appreciate so much, it comes out of Advaita Vedanta. And I think it's been slowly infiltrating a lot of the moksha traditions. It's in Buddhism as well, though I'm not sure they call it by exactly this, but it's, it's very similar. So a Shravana, you hear teachings. I mean, in those days, traditionally, of course, there was no textbooks. You're not studying textbooks, right? It's mostly a oral tradition. So being passed from teacher to student, on and on. And on. Okay. So Shravana hearing these teachings, manana contemplating the teachings, deeply mm -hmm. contemplating. If you remember the end of each integral yoga retreat, what did Gurudev always use as an example? The cow. Right. Yeah. Chewing the cud. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard all these teachings. It's like a cow grazing on the grass. You've heard all the teachings. You've done a lot of the practices, eating the grass, right? Like the cow eats the grass. Then what does the cow do? The cow then digests, brings up the cud, chewing the cud over and over, taking out the little sticks, mm -hmm. little stones, re-eating and digesting. That's manana. You're looking at everything. What made sense to me? What do I have a question about? Oh, yeah, now I understand that. And that fits with that. So it's coming to this deeper understanding of the shravana, what you heard, mm. bringing it deeper into your system. And that's not the end of that. Next is nididhyasana, which is nididhyasana is meditation. And it means that you are taking now what you have deeply understood and you are beginning to embody that, digest it fully. Okay, so the second one is first you hear it. Yes. Then you think about it, it sounds yes, like. Yes, you contemplate and, it. And then you, you don't think about it, you somehow absorb it without going through the mind so much. Is that... How yes. you understand it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's yeah. yes. It's a it's the progression mm -hmm. from the mind into the embodied consciousness. Mm, okay. In which it's now being converted into energy, and you are you're experientially starting to really integrate. Mm -hmm. I love the word digest. You're digesting it. Yeah. Yeah. Assimilating it. Yeah. Yeah. Assimilating. That's it. Yeah. 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 So that's the process. Those three things, yeah. Yes. When you're studying any, whether it's you're studying the Upanishads, whether you're studying a new practice or a new teaching, that's the process that you would go through to really absorb and, like you say, assimilate whatever that teaching or practice is. I can see why it's useful to have your teacher 
around for some time because you're hearing through your own filtered understanding in the beginning. So even your hearing is going to distort the teachings. Yeah. That's uh, and, that's so, and then you're contemplating it, but uh, you're so confused. So it's so helpful to have someone you like we had on Saturday night, you know, uh, uh, could you say a little bit more about this? Or uh, <laughs> uh, I don't understand this, you know, uh, that's the benefit of having the teacher around. And we were lucky to have Gerda around for so many decades to so we could get get it straight. Exactly. Yeah, and that's yeah. the beauty of this, too, because it's not that kind of dogmatic type of teaching. This is the teaching. You will accept it or be banished. Mm -hmm, right. These systems, the moksha traditions are based in deep questioning. In Buddhism, they have this whole spiritual practice of debate where you go back and forth. Two people, it's almost like a uh, martial arts <laughs> <laughs> encounter. It's <laughs> with these movements and you challenge the person mm. you're mm. debating and you bring up this and then they counter with that. And it's all to really do what the cow is doing. It's going through it all and trying to make it more real. And it's like pre-digesting the mm. food so that you can absorb it better by taking Being challenged. Being challenged is so helpful, right? Uh, right? You have to you have to get very clear. Yes. Uh, yeah. What do I believe? Does it does this sync up with my experience? And they want you to do this. These traditions, these beautiful teachings that come out of India are wanting us to not just accept them, but ask ourselves, how does this comport with my reality, my experience? What what questions, what conflicts, confusion? And don't just leave that, get it all cleared up. I think one problem that we see happen in, in, in probably most traditions is that once the teacher leaves the body, they were very broad, they were very expansive, but the disciples hear certain things and they, that's where the orthodoxy thing sets in that, the, oh, the guru, guru said this, uh, he may have said different things at different times, but he said this, and then we follow it to the letter and we miss the spirit. Yeah. It's... Uh, I think that, I think that's, not unusual to happen in a tradition. No, I think we see that in yeah. all traditions that happens. Yeah. So it's all about really coming back to really listening carefully, going through that three-stage process. Yeah. The Shravana Manana Nididhyasana. And also, thankfully, relying on people who have gone very deep in their own practice and are our, we could call them our lineage holders. Mm-hmm our senior swamis and ministers and teachers who have really done that process of going so deep and continue to work on that and be dedicated to their own practice. And Gurdjieff also went beyond, you know, his own lineage. Uh, he, he set that good example of connecting people of, of different faiths. I think at some point, it's good to, like you were saying about how Saivism exploded by people going to different villages and having contact with different ideas. I think it's, I find it's helpful for me to hear people who see things very differently. How am I going to respectfully take that in? I think there's a benefit in that. And I think Gurudev wanted us to be able to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's very easy to become very insular. Mm, right. That's and, a good word, yeah. Yeah, and your world kind of shrinks down. 
and encountering other voices really does help. I noticed that in my study of different traditions, I mean, I stuck mostly to the Indian philosophical schools. I was looking at how each was viewing duality or non-duality, how they were expressing it. And then I was bringing back deeper understanding of these issues to our own tradition Mm -hmm. and understanding Gurudev's teachings in a much deeper way. I I feel it's like the proverbial onion. I think starting out at that outer layer and by engaging in other dialogue and study of other traditions, we learn more about our own tradition and come to appreciate it even more. Yeah, I think we have to be careful about thinking of Sangha as like-minded people. So you're only going to be with like-minded people. Actually, uh, that's not even the meaning of Sangha. <laughs> <laughs> How did it become? I know it's sort of, I feel like it's kind of degenerating to like-minded people. Like-minded, that's the interesting the, thing. <laughs> yeah, the Sanskrit Sangha is company of the truth seekers. Yeah. Sat is in that sense, truth. in that sense, they're likewise. They're like-minded in a sense, seeking the truth, but yes. not necessarily about what that truth is. And or yeah, or how yeah. I see it or you see it. Yeah, it, yeah. But there's a sincerity yeah. in delving into the deepest layers of absolute truth. For me now, I feel there is a benefit for me in spending more time with the like-minded part being people who are on the non-dual path Mm. because that is what I'm exploring in depth at this point in time and is the most enriching and nourishing for me. Mm. I think I spent enough time in dualistic thinking. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's, well, that's what Gurida was trying to pull us out of. He was trying to to tell us, look, dualistic thinking is what is going on in the material world. And almost by default, it has to be. We see people as different and all of that. So that's that's the norm, right? But for spiritual seekers going different, you have to keep the dual vision and understand the reality. The real truth, the eternal truth is the non-dual truth that we are all one. And that's what Gurudev was pointing to in his interfaith dialogue and interfaith activism. It was all about pointing to the richness that comes from appreciating the diversity while recognizing the unity behind all the diversity. That's the way to really enjoy the diversity. Otherwise, the diversity is just a hotbed for conflict. I found in my own progress, as I was kind of devoted to a non-dual dualistic attitude, that it was pulling me out of my current experience. Like in what way? I don't know if maybe... Maybe that's what I don't like to overuse the term spiritual bypassing means that uh, I was using very high spiritual concepts to negate my current reality that I had desires, I had fears, I saw people as others, I saw myself as a separate individual, 
And I was just overriding all that to try to hold on to something. And I think it was diminishing my capacity to come in touch, which I think is the, the first requirement is to be in touch with yourself and then you can move on. But if you don't start from that, you have no grounding. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I'm so yeah. glad you brought this point. I mean, we've talked yeah. about it from time to time. It's yeah. such an important misunderstood issue. The mm. idea of that you could be established in a non-dual view, and we're not talking about established like a Sri Ramana Maharshi or <laughs> Dave, or yeah. at that level of you're completely awakened, but you're practicing toward, right? Right, right. If you are just practicing toward that, you're not yet established in it, and you also haven't done the growing up part of the waking mm. up journey, Right. then you are going to land in spiritual bypassing. And that's mm -hmm. why Gurudev said you have to have the dual vision. In some of the moksha traditions, the material worldly part is negated. Don't bother. Really? Why don't be a renunciate, become a monk? Well, Gurudev is saying become a renunciate in the spirit right. of not being attached and embodying the non-dual view that we are all one and everything is perfect and we're all perfect incarnations of the one. At the same time, the dual vision says we're also living in a material world that most people are living in in a dualistic way. And you're not going to be able to engage with people if you're not able to walk that fine line of dual vision where you're mm. practicing toward being established in non-duality and yet you are relating to each other in a loving, compassionate. I mean, that's part of non-dualism because you don't see any difference between yourself and them. So you're going to be naturally serviceful and dedicated and compassionate and loving and kind and all of those things. That's what we see in the enlightened masters. They're most yeah. of the time, they're not just trotting off to some cave somewhere. They are sharing their wisdom, trying to relieve suffering, being bodhisattvas in the world. That's the idea, but they're doing it in a way where they're able to connect with people in a very real way and feel empathically for them and their suffering all the time, remembering what the truth is. So you're living from the truth and you're engaging in the world in skillful ways and in authentic ways. Yeah. It's like Gurudev used to always say it, it was hard to understand when in Rome behave like the Romans, <laughs> yeah. because it seems like, well, are you putting it on? Is it really real? There is a way to be authentically engaged in the world and with people and with problems and be very effective and empathic and compassionate at the same time maintaining this equal vision, the equal vision that comes from the dual vision that in its fruition is equal vision. You see everything as part of the one, part of the whole. Beautiful. Yeah. I think of uh, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. He had a serious problem in front of him. 
he thought that he'd become a Swami, become a monk. And Krishna said, no, no, I want you to become a real renunciate. You don't have to change your clothes. You have to stick with the situation. Don't run away from it. As you said, don't go to a cave. That's the renunciation. And act knowing that there's one here and everyone is a, a channel for that one. I think that's the the beautiful teaching. It's the highest teaching that we see really in every faith and wisdom tradition. It's what Gurudev was continually pointing to with that one column of light rising in the lotus, mm. becoming these rays that illuminate each mm. of the different paths, because ultimately that's what we all want. We all want to be happy, peaceful, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And we know that doesn't come from just being these contracted little yeah. distinct individuals that have nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. So it comes back to our how we started full circle. What's our motivation? I want to be happy. I want to be peaceful. I want <laughs> yeah. to be loving. I want to be light. You know, yeah. Yeah. I want to be useful. So it is, it's an integration. It's a site. That's why I always say it's a psycho spiritual journey and integration, spiritual beings having a human experience. How can we have the human experiences beautifully residing in the true, true fullness of our spiritual nature to where we realize there's really no distinction. What's mm. within is without, without, within, no boundaries or borders, without spiritually bypassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, don't forget that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good journey. Yeah. Good journey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to integralyoga.org. Om Shanti.